Missouri Net Sports. I'm Bill Pollack. Thanks for being along with us. What is a fish kill event? One happened at the Lake of the Ozarks. We'll hear from the Missouri Department of Conservation. The heat and drought in Missouri obviously affecting farmers, but for plants and flowers around your house, we'll have ways to protect your garden with MU Extension. Missouri's marijuana use is on the rise. The Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services will be on the program to talk about new packaging. Every year, Congress considers a bill that affects hundreds of thousands of Missourians. It is the Defense Authorization Bill, the NDAA, which funds military bases and troops. Missouri's U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt is on the powerful Senate Armed Services Committee, and Ashley Byrd has asked him for an update on the bill from Capitol Hill. Yeah, so we had the big markup. Um, we finished that, um, which was sort of a marathon, couple-day session to get that in place out of committee and go to the Senate floor. The House is doing their version as well, and that's obviously the big the big bill that authorizes all of the expenditures related to our national defense. And so I serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and uh, we're pretty successful in making sure that Missouri's interests, we've got a proud tradition of you know military culture and readiness right here in Missouri, whether it's White Air Force Base or Fort Winter Wood or all the men who served. And so I'm proud to serve in that committee. We were able to do that, move those interests forward, uh, and also make sure that we're recognizing the real threat that China poses to the United States and other folks in that region. So there are some uh, important investments made, I think, for that kind of readiness as well. Hey, I want to ask you about that. Let's talk about a few of the big wins for Missouri, in your opinion. There's a long list here that you sent of uh, of different funding uh, that is listed in here that has to do with Missouri. What are two or three of the biggies that you'd like to talk about? I think making sure we're taking care of our uh, men and women uh, who serve, um, whether that's uh, um, on the housing side and you know, improvements for the quality of life for military members and their families at Fort Leonard Wood, making sure uh, White and Air Force Base remains. You know, we've had the B-2 bomber there uh, for years, and that is a critical uh, piece to the sort of nuclear triad for our national defense and, and making sure that that uh, remains um, an important thing. We were successful in being able to do that. There's also a lot of uh, other places in Missouri that support that kind of, whether it's uh, production or it's uh, you know, other national security interests. I mean, we've got in Kansas City the, the, uh, the Nuclear Security Administration that's there that does a lot of uh, important work on, um, on modernization. We've got in St. Louis, of course, you've got the, the NGA facility. That's, that's really important. But I think also keeping in mind our supply chain management, um, there's certainly a demand signal that's being sent right now. I mean, we, um, China, for example, has you know, uh, three times the number of uh, naval shipyards to build a Navy that's bigger than ours right now. So I think we've got to be mindful of this, uh, where we're at, and also uh, making sure we're competitive in winning uh, the space race. Um, a lot of these new technologies are in space. The United States has to remain uh, the dominant figure in space. China is, is our pacing challenge. And so I think from a Missouri perspective and a national security perspective, those things go hand in hand because Missouri plays a really important role in our national defense. You mentioned military families. I do want to ask you about this because the state government um, engaged a reciprocity program for military spouses. Not all states do that. So there's a there's a piece in here uh, that you uh, co-sponsored with Senator Ossoff, I think, from Georgia, is that correct? Who that expands 
reimbursements for spouses that have to re-up licenses, certifications, relocation costs every time their spouse in the military moves. Um, that's something that seems like Missouri kind of got ahead of. Is that what this is about? Yeah, and we, um, I'm proud. It's, it's a bipartisan effort. Uh, Senator Ossoff from Georgia and I worked together to introduce a, a bipartisan bill, the Military Spouse Career Support Act, uh, which increases that job flexibility for military spouses during those relocations. So um, they're able to, um, as they're moving from one place to another, um, whether they're a nurse or whether they're a teacher, this really helps them, um, you know, seamlessly get involved in the community, do what they do, and, and serve our communities in those ways. I mean, these are just these are uh, very important things, I think, to make our military men and women and our spouses know that Missouri is a place where we're going we're gonna to be looking out for you and do these kinds of things that are common sense to support them. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Ashley Bird here with U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt. Was there anything coming into the Armed Services Committee as a civilian that surprised you? I know this is a, is a top assignment. Is there anything that surprised you or, or that you learned that you didn't know before that you could share with the public? Well, I was grateful to get the uh, uh, the appointment that committee. That's a, a very important uh, committee, not just for Missouri, but for the country. And I think that uh, as I've been part of the open hearings and, of course, the classified and top secret um, hearings about what our threats are, it's certainly eye-opening. I mean, you look around the world, and, uh, and China is playing for keeps. Um, I mean, the Chinese, the, the spy balloon, I think, raised that awareness of what their intentions are. They had a spy balloon that traversed across the continent of the United States, including over white men in St. Louis. Um, and I think that opened a lot of people's eyes. But the truth is um, they have built islands in the South China Sea. They're fully weaponized with anti-aircraft missiles, anti-ship missiles. Um, they have designs on world domination. And um, we've got to be prepared for that. We, from a readiness perspective, uh, to make sure we're defending our homeland and also understanding, I think, more than anything, the threat that China poses. I would say that's been the most eye-opening thing. I mean, I certainly understood that going in. Um, but when you get more and more information from a technical perspective of what they're doing and the advances that they've made, uh, it's very concerning. And I think part of my job is to make sure that Missourians understand that um, from from my position on that committee and working for everything that can protect the United States. You included some things uh, about the culture of the military in this that you were advocating for uh, had to do with DEI training and education and use of that sort of thing. First, do you think this will stay? And my other question is, should that be left to the military leadership to decide the culture um, of of its troops? Well, I think our military has been, you know, one of the great meritocracies in human history. I mean, people from every single ring of the socioeconomic ladder, including the lowest, have gone on to do great things. I mean, they've been war heroes. They've gone on to be generals. Ticker tape parades have been thrown for them in New York City from Missourians. We've got a proud tradition of that, of people who can achieve great things. And part of that culture in the military that's been so successful is that's, you know, this is one mission, and we're in it together. There's a reason why we wear uniforms. There's a reason why there's sort of a standard-issue haircut. Um, what we don't need is politics injected into our military. I think people are – what's coming to light now about this really divisive DEI training, it's destructive. We've had military members come to us um, privately and publicly saying this is, this is ripping the fabric of that cohesiveness apart. And so we were able to be successful in getting, number one, an accounting for We've asked Secretary Boyd Austin for an accounting of what kind of trainings, how many man hours are dedicated to this. 
agencies uh, not provided that information. Uh, so we're going to have the, uh, an audit of that that was successfully put in the NDA. I'm proud of that. And then also a complete hiring freeze on the DEI administrative positions. Um, this is uh, a cottage industry that's developed, and it's a scam. Uh, it's like I said, it's completely destructive to our military. It has no place there. Let's get back to the business of protecting the United States and being ready. Thank you, Senator. I appreciate your time today from Capitol Hill. Thank you for being on our show. Show me today. Take care. Thank you. Here's Heather with the weather. Well, it's beautiful out there, sunny and 75, almost a little chilly in the shade. Now, let's get a read on the inside of your car. It is hot. You've only been parked a short time, and it's already 99 degrees in there. Let's not leave children in the back seat while running errands. It only takes a few minutes for their body temperatures to rise, and that could be fatal. Cars get hot fast and can be deadly. Never leave a child in a car. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit aa.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Uh, we're dealing with a lot of heat and a lot of drought conditions here in our state. And that can do a number on our plants. And to help us uh, get through this hot and dry summer is Donna Oftenberg from MU Extension. Donna, hello. Uh, greetings. What? Uh, first of all, uh, 
How does this drought compare to what you've seen in the past? You know, one thing that I have noticed is that this drought has started very early on. You know, it typically our late our droughts are late in the year. They uh, usually happen in August into September, but this year the drought started really early on uh, for most of the state, and so that has only compounded it. So instead of getting those early rains like we're used to, we've been dry. Uh, and so the dry upon dry has only made things much worse for our plants. Yeah, and how much more of an effect does it have on plants when it started this early as opposed to later in the summer? Well, most of our plants, they need a deep root development in order to make it through a drought. And, you know, when we've had rainy springs or, um, you know, or there's not been any reason for the plants to sink their roots, they dry out a lot quicker. And so that's, you know, what we're, we're seeing a lot of plant stress because they, they haven't been able to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I would definitely start watering more frequently, um, especially if they're newly planted. Donna Oftenberg from MU Extension here to help us with our plants during this heat and droughts. And we'll talk about Uh, some watering tips, but, you know, we may be thinking that we're doing okay, but what are some signs of uh, heat and drought on our plants where there'd be some red flags for us? The number one sign, uh, it would be wilting. You know, if you walk out and all the leaves are are drooping and wilting or you start getting yellowing or, you know, browning of leaves, then you know you have a problem. Uh, And not all plants are going to respond the same way. So you can have a plant um, in a big bed and only a couple of them are wilting, whereas the others are not. And so definitely start taking a look at anything that's showing those signs. You might dig around and make sure that soil is dry versus wet because the same sign for being too dry is also the sign for overwatering. So I always try to tell people to learn what dry is and dig around and make sure that plant is indeed dry um, and then, then attempt to water it. When we notice that there are leaves that are brown or beginning to yellow, is there a certain time where we should clip those away from the plant? I would allow the plant to recover. I would water, allow the plant to recover, and reassess about a day later. If those leaves look like they're not going to aid in the plant uh, photosynthesis or being able to feed itself, then that's when I would remove them. How much should we water our plants and, and how often? So the the thought is we want to equate to about an inch to an inch and a half a week of rainfall. Now, how much is that? That's hard to gauge when you're just holding a hose and letting it trickle. <laughs> yeah. I, I always I always try to encourage people to have a systematic approach. Well, so, you know, take a look at trying to use a soaker hose and keeping it on for 20 minutes and try to gauge what does that 20 minutes give you. So I always try to take a shallow bowl um, and, and put it under a section of that tubing. At the end of 20 minutes, see how deep the, the water is in that bowl, and that will give you an idea of how much you're irrigating. It will get you closer. Or if you're using a sprinkler system, same thought, a flat flat bowl um, or a shallow bowl, and, and you would gauge it, run, let it run 20 minutes and see how much gets in that bowl. And that's a good way of gauging. 
The other thing is I like the bucket. You know, put a couple of nail holes in the bottom of a bucket and just set the bucket in that garden or against the base of a tree that you're wanting to water. And then you have a good idea of how much you're watering when you're giving it a half a bucket or a full bucket if it's a big tree. Um, and you just let it slowly percolate into the soil, where and then you know there's no runoff happening, that it is actually getting into that root ball. So lots of different ways to try to gauge an inch and a half. Donna, if we just take our hose and we go to our a small flower garden, maybe around our mailbox, uh, and we are watering, how often should we water? Yeah, that, that's that's. I always try to say gauge it on your last rainfall. So if it's been raining pretty consistently, then you might only water maybe once a week. Um, if it's been dry and it's been dry a long time, look at your heat index. Look at how humid it is. Humid is. If it's dry, you might be watering every couple of days. If we're humid, you might only be able uh, you might be able to do it once a week. So it just uh, there's a lot of variables, and and my my suggestion is if you have question about your watering practices or how often, reach out to your local horticulturist with MU Extension, and they usually keep track of weather. They usually keep track of what's going on, and we can always help you figure that out. Donna Oftenberg with MU Extension, helping our plants during this heat and drought. And you can subscribe to uh, this show as a podcast. Uh, search on Apple for Show Me Today. Uh, is there a benefit to mulching plants during a drought? Yes. Um, anytime you can get a covering over that soil, you will hold moisture in longer. So you will not have to water as much if you have a good mulch layer. Now, what is a good mulch layer? Uh, typically three to four inches. Uh, when you're mulching around trees, when you're mulching around shrubs, always think donut. You want to leave that mulch pulled away from the bark. You do not want to heap it up on the bark of the tree or the shrubs. And, and that way you can retain moisture longer. And it, so research is showing that if you mulch, you can uh, be more seldom about watering. Donna, I had a, an old neighbor who uh, used to take his uh, grass clippings and would spread them in his tomato garden. Uh, would, th would that help? Would that have the, the same uh, benefits as, as mulching? Could you use grass clippings? Yes, as long as there is a, no herbicide in it. Ah, so okay. if there's been no herbicides used, you can collect all the all the clippings you want, and they make great mulch. You uh, talked about getting in touch with uh, a local MU Extension uh, horticulturist to help. Um, are there other resources online from MU Extension that people can check out? Yes, you can go to the website, and there's a series of publications uh, that it has a broad array of different topics uh, regarded to horticulture. Now, I know you're not uh, a meteorologist, uh, but have you been following this? Any any word on how long this drought will last? Do we see any signs of relief coming? You know, you know that is hard to say. I know that um, a lot of the meteorologists are only willing to predict out to about four to six weeks, and because things can change so abruptly and quickly. And right now, I do believe there's a glimmer of hope on the horizon, but that that could change. That could change very quickly. Um, we are um, in a heat dome right now, and I know that they're saying that's going to at least last for a week. 
So definitely be protecting plants, keep an eye on them, scout your gardens, and, and just try to keep make sure they're, they have enough moisture and consider shading them if the heat gets above 100. Well, we're crossing our green thumbs for luck. Donna Oftenberg with MU Extension, thanks for all the, the tips for helping our plants through this drought. Thank you for having me. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you talk and they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, 
a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. We're back on Show Me Today. There was a fish kill event at Lake of the Ozarks. What are they? Do they happen naturally, and how often do they happen? Maddie Est with the Missouri Department of Conservation has all the answers. Fish kill events um, can fall into two categories. The most common here in Missouri is going to be a natural fish kill. Um, That usually makes up around three-quarters of the events that the Department of Conservation um, gets reported to them. And then the other one are man-made or, um, you know, pollution-based fish kills. And basically what a fish kill is, when we're talking about it, it's going to be um, the death of a lot of fish in one certain area. And so people that report them to the Department of Conservation often either notice, you know, it might be smelly or they may actually see, you know, a bunch of dead fish on the bank of, of where they think that's a very odd place. Um, and, and when we say a lot of fish, we don't mean one or two. Um, it can be dozens. And that's really where we start to want to look into these events. So this happened recently following up on uh, a story that took place in or near the Lake of the Ozarks. And uh, so we're, let's go into more detail a little bit, the difference between uh, natural and I guess you would call them unnatural fish kill events. Uh, so what causes the natural ones to happen? Change in oxygen levels, temperature levels? Exactly. So especially here in Missouri, um, we've been experiencing drought. There's not a lot of water coming in, right? And so when you get a bunch of fish in a body of water, that's not getting more water replenishing the supply of dissolved oxygen. Um, at, there's a certain point where the fish population is too numerous for the amount of dissolved oxygen in the water. And basically the weaker fish just cannot compete for that resource and they will die because they do not have anything to breathe. That can happen in many types of bodies of water. Um, You will notice in some of, you know, ponds or pools of water, if the water level gets really low, uh, it's very similar. We don't have enough water to support the population of fish. Will it kill every fish in that pond? Possibly not. You know, there is still dissolved oxygen in the water unless all the water is gone. Um, But it can kill a large majority of the population. And so, when we're experiencing drought, we kind of expect to see some fish kill events, um, especially given our recent, you know, past few summers and early falls. It's just been very warm um, and there's not a lot of water coming in and the fish just can't compete for the resource. Uh, Follow up, if I may, has climate change contributed to this happening more often as opposed to, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? So obviously, anytime you're trying to link climate change to an event, uh, there has to be research to support that. And so I think that's something that is still coming up. You know, people are starting to look and see, hey, we're noticing these changes. How is that impacting what's going on? Um, and so the research is starting in, in the conservation community to happen. Um, personally, I'm not aware of any, you know, documented published papers right now um, because that's just a little outside of my realm. Um, some of our biologists might know. They might keep up to it a little bit 
more closely than I do. One thing I think is interesting is, uh, I guess, I, I don't really know how you would label this, but I guess we'll just for the sake of argument's sake, call them a an unnatural fish kill event. When I think of that, I think of, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in the more urban metropolitan regions of, say, for example, the Rust Belt. And I remember growing up as a kid hearing about all the time the Cuyahoga River catching on fire 50 years ago in Cleveland. And, and, and that was because of, for example, the dumping of the oil and the gasoline and the fuel and other random things in the river, which then contributed to, uh, obviously, the, the, the fish population dying and or just fish you just don't want to eat. Uh, is that something similar in a situation like this of an so-called unnatural fish kill event? Yes. So usually what we see um, here in Missouri are going to be pollution events, uh, whether they're intentional or they're unintentional. So we might have, you know, a, a water main break that's got treated water, chlorinated water for drinking um, that makes its way into a natural stream or, or body of water and the fish, you know, they can't they can't survive in the chlorine. Um, that's something that we see. Um, the reason we're so cautious of fish kill events and the reason we pay so much attention to them is because um, they can be great indicators of the water quality in a location. Um, the Department of Conservation doesn't necessarily handle water quality. So we, you know, we defer to the Department of Natural Resources who will handle water quality and, and regulations. And, you know, is this runoff legal? Is it not? That's their wheelhouse. But we work together with them to say, hey, you know, What's the water quality looking like in this area? Is this an unnatural fish kill? Because there can also be financial repercussions uh, for individuals responsible for fish kill events because they are a resource for the people of Missouri. And um, to just disregard that um, is kind of against what we what we believe at the department. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Maddie Ast, media specialist with the Missouri Department of Conservation on Show Me Today. We're talking about fish kill events. They take place in your nearest stream or river or lake. I didn't realize that the State Department of Conservation handles nearly like 100 of these each year. Absolutely. The way we do that, our website mdc.mo.gov has, if you search up, you know, fish kill in our search bar, it will take you to report a fish kill. And we have uh, fish management biologists. We've got our fishery staff that are on call, especially when we know that we might be looking at a, a condition where we could see natural fish kills, you know, hot, dry days, dry summers. And so we have folks that dedicate their time pretty well around the clock to manage those reports because if it is a natural fish kill, there's no worry for the public. You can still fish in those areas. The fish that are still alive are not harmed. You don't need to worry about them. They're just like any other fish. But if it's an unnatural fish kill, um, if there's pollution or chemicals in the water, you might not want to consume fish in that area. And so that's why when we get those reports, we will send staff out to do an investigation. And the conclusion of that investigation will determine, you know, do folks need to be concerned? Do they need to, you know, avoid the area, not fish there until we know the water quality is back to safe levels? But most of the time it's a natural fish kill and there's really no concern for the public. So ignoring the fish that were found belly up, those living in the water like in stream can be caught, can be eaten, 
safe to, uh, I guess, be around. What happens with those, uh, I guess, that are left behind? You just sort of leave them there? Yes. So, obviously, any any dead animals, not the most appetizing. It's going to be kind of smelly. It's not going to be pretty I mean, to look at. I, I drive near dead deer on an almost <laughs> daily basis. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be good venison to eat. Probably not. <laughs> so, we, we obviously do not recommend that folks mess with the, the fish that have already died. Um, but that being said, the Department of Conservation will not collect those fish because they are so good for the environment. Um, it's it's the ugly truth of nature that even in death, an animal is feeding into the ecosystem. You know, you've got the insects that are breaking down the, the, the carcass and releasing nutrients back into the ecosystem. And so with natural fish kill events, that's that's a benefit that we want to allow to happen. And it's it's gross. We know that, um, especially if we have a fish kill in really populated areas. We know that folks might not want to look at that or smell it, but it's an important part of the natural cycle that we want to let happen. And at the end of the day, you're you're feeding the environment, your uh, circle of life, if you will. Exactly. And not to, you know, start singing the Lion King, but <laughs> it's it is there's truth behind it. Um, before we continue on in the conversation, I did want to mention to our listeners who are tuning in late, you can find Show Me Today on Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. All you have to do is type in Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. You can... Uh, Click follow, like, download, listen, and take us with you wherever you go. So uh, I recognize this one event took place in the Lake of the Ozarks, but is it common to find this sort of anywhere in Missouri? Pretty well. Wherever there's the fish population and water, um, which, you know, you can't have fish population without water, um, which is kind of the whole issue here, um, they can they can happen. We get a lot of private landowners that have ponds on their property and you know, if they don't have really great runoff and water feeding back into it, they'll experience fish kills. Um, and that can happen on a small scale, too. Um, for the instance at the Lake of the Ozarks, you know, it was a little bit bigger because there were more fish. Makes sense. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we let you go? If you have any concerns, the Department of Conservation, we want to hear from you. Um, part of our mission is to serve the people of Missouri as well as the wildlife and so if there's a concern or you've got questions, we really, really enjoy interacting with the public. We want to talk with you. We want to be able to serve you. So we encourage you to reach out. Um, we've got regional offices all over the state. Uh, if you go to our website, you can there's a contact and engage tab and you can find your local you know, conservation agent, maybe a biologist or a private lands person. There's somebody pretty close by no matter where you are. And so we really encourage that you reach out and just interact with us. We want to hear what what you know and what you see. And, and lastly, I did want to mention for those listening, if you do happen to come across a fish kill event, whether it be natural or unnatural, you can find a way to report that on the Missouri Department of Conservation's website as well. And the website is? mdc.mo.gov. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. 
Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit helpfordebtors.org. That's helpfordebtors.org. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. And among children, the numbers are even higher. The Drive to Feed Kids Hogs for Hunger program gives Missouri pig farmers and 4-H and FFA swine exhibitors the opportunity to address hunger in their communities by committing pigs locally or at the Missouri State Fair. One pig can feed more than 500 Missourians in need. Learn how you can participate at mofarmerscare.com drive. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit MoFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the efforts. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Back on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri, I'm Bill Pollack. Adult-use marijuana has been legal to possess since December and recreationally legal to buy since February. As Missouri's cannabis industry adjusts and grows, one thing that is being worked on is new packaging. Amy Moore of the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services joins Marshall Griffin to discuss what changes are being made. The law that passed for medical marijuana use back in 2018 had some pretty basic requirements for packaging. There were some labeling requirements and uh, requirements for childproof elements of packaging. But when the new law passed for adult use and also modifying the medical use part of the law, there were some new standards that were included, um, things like needing to focus more on the protection of public 
public health in packaging and also explicitly um, needing to um, take some measures to mitigate the appeal to children of packaging for marijuana. And so we took a look at that. We looked around for ways to implement that. And what we came up with was the standard of plain and uniform packaging um, that is common in other industries and in some other states that regulate marijuana. And we incorporated that into our new rules. Now, when we talk about plain packaging, give us an example of what, because I've never been inside a cannabis store, so I don't know what the, what it looks like. So for, for someone who's never been inside a store, explain what, explain what type of uh, packaging exists now. What does it look like now and what will it look like once the new standards are in place? Sure. So right now there are all kinds of designs on packaging. Um, and because of the previous standard, um, you wouldn't necessarily look at this package and have the health information be the first thing you notice. Um, you also, uh, with all of the colors, you might see some designs that you would think could be appealing to children. Under the new standard, what you will see instead is some limitations on colors, limitations on designs to make it a little bit more plain, a little bit more uniform across products uh, so that the focus of the packaging would be more on the health information like health warnings and what's actually in the product and would reduce the potential for that package to appeal to children. So you could think of it as a difference between the cereal aisle and a tobacco product or over-the-counter medicines. Our rules won't be as plain as what you might see on tobacco products. There's a little more um, opportunity for color and design, um, but that's the idea that we would be reducing the, um, the colors and the designs to focus on health and protecting kids. Would this mean that certain common, are certain colors completely banned, certain color combinations not allowed? Uh, what, I guess, uh, explain mm -hmm. that a little further. Sure. So some states really go all the way and say only black and white. Um, we did not go that far. Uh, what we have instead is we allow a primary color for the packaging, so one main color. Um, and then they are also uh, permitted to include up to two logos that can be a different color or different colors. So it's really reducing the um, number of colors and the busyness of the design of the packaging, but not all the way to only allowing black and white and no pictures and what you might expect to see more uh, on over-the-counter medicines. Has there been any pushback from any particular companies or manufacturers who say, well, this, you know, this particular color, this particular design is our, you know, this is the face of our product. This is what helps us get an edge on our competitors. Any pushback along those lines? Mm -hmm. So we had a very robust um, public rulemaking process when we put this together, and we got feedback from all kinds of perspectives, some saying we needed to go further to protect kids, um, others <clears throat> more in industry-focused groups saying that they wanted more freedom to do designs, as you say, uh, that maybe matched their designs in other states. So we feel that we found a, a good compromise that protects health, protects kids, but also allows some freedom in design of packaging. But one thing to remember is packaging is not advertising. 
so a company would still be uh, free to design their advertising, which would appear other places than just on the packaging. So a lot of freedom still in advertising uh, in order to you know keep their branding however they would like to. It's really just on the package, the thing that you take home that will be what you refer to for health information or that will be around kids. That's the thing that has these restrictions on it. You're listening to Show Me Today. This is Marshall Griffin. We're speaking with Amy Moore. She's the Director of Cannabis Regulation for the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Of course, we've been talking colors and designs, packaging. Let's talk about the other aspect of packaging, and that is, um, I guess, being able to open a package. Um, I I believe you said something about uh, making sure they're childproof. How how exactly, uh, I guess, how are the packages now, and are there any things that need to be made to make them uh, childproof? Yes, so a couple things. There's always been a requirement for this packaging to be um, childproof, uh, but there was a little more flexibility previously where if a product was packaged in a series of containers, so perhaps there was a jar that was in a bag, um, one or the other needed to be childproof. Where we have improved the standard this time is that we are now requiring the childproofing be on the package closest to the product so that you don't end up in a situation where someone takes the childproof bag home, immediately takes the product out of that bag and stores it, you know, in the in the container that the actual product is in. The container that the actual product is in now needs to be the childproof thing. But other than that, there really haven't been a lot of changes in that part of our requirements. Is the uh, is the container is the childproof style container uh, similar or identical to what you would find on a prescription drug um, plastic bottle? Very similar. You think about um, the jars where you have to push down on the lid in order to get it to come open. Um, there are several ways to go about childproofing, but that's one that I'm very familiar with, and I've seen it quite a lot on the products in these facilities. What's the overall strategy to uh, these new requirements for packaging? Is it to make sure that uh, minors aren't uh, being drawn to try to buy cannabis illegally by kind of downplaying the the desirability of what's for sale? Is that that part of it or is that the whole thing? Um, That's a key part of it. Uh, The way it was expressed in law is appeal to children. And so um, I think what you describe is exactly right. Um, It's to make that package that may be in someone's home um, not uh, draw the attention of children, Um, reducing the number of colors, uh, the brightness, uh, that that type of design has been proven over many years of research, particularly in relation to tobacco products, to reduce the appeal to children. So children would be less likely to pick it up and try to get into the package with a design like this. This would be, uh, I guess, a similar a similar process to uh, making prescription medicines less appealing to children as well, you know, by the the childproof caps or things like that, although the labels don't seem to be, to prescription medicines don't already seem to be, to me, wouldn't be appealing to a child anyway, but this, obviously, that's not the case with uh, cannabis packaging currently? 
Right. So right now you might see a package that could be designed to look like maybe street graffiti or um, a circus sign, um, all very colorful and interesting designs uh, designed to grab attention, um, as advertising often is. But like I said, in the way this law is written, packaging is different from advertising, and we're, we're trying to um, remove a lot of that potential for appeal to children in the design of packaging. And actually, um, many of the products that are out there right now already have a design that is um, close to compliance, so there could be a few adjustments. And because we also allow um, up to two logos uh, to be placed on the package of colors, um, uh, you know, any colors, a lot of our entities will still be able to use their recognizable logo and put that on the package without any changes. And do these uh, are these changes in effect now, or do they take effect later in the year? So the new rules will become effective on July 31st. There will need to be a transition period. It would be very difficult for um, any of us on the regulatory side or on the licensee side to just flip a switch and go from their existing packaging that they may still have some of to the new requirement. We are also instituting a new pre-approval process where licensees will come to us and show us what their packaging will be. We'll review it on the front end for compliance and then approve it before they use it. That will be great for all of us to ensure compliance before packaging, before they invest in packaging, but it also will take some time. So everyone can expect a bit of a transition period after July 31st as we work to bring everybody into the new standard. We've been talking to Amy Moore. She's the Director of Cannabis Regulation for the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Now, if you're tuning in late or want to hear more, you can subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Wrapping up here on Show Me Today, well, 41-year-old pitcher Adam Wainwright on the injured list. He was pulled the other day after that 15-2 Cardinals loss to the Marlins. Wainwright had allowed 17 earned runs in eight innings over his last three starts. He's got a shoulder issue, said that's never been a problem for him. 41 years old, perhaps the body is starting to break down. Could this be the final run. I'm not giving up, so I uh, still want to go out there and, and do great. I feel like I'm going to. I just got to get myself in a better position to be able to do that, you know, stop kidding myself. Well, hopefully the time off will help uh, bring him back strong. For Ashley Bird, Anthony Morbeth, and Marshall Griffin, I'm Bill Pollock. Thanks for listening. Show me today.